Welcome back to Tears, Tides, and Transformation, a podcast about healing. I am Bridget Flaherty. And I am Kiana Daniels. And today we are speaking with Tanita Johnson, who joined us remotely from just outside of Detroit, Michigan. Tanita is an author, an editor, a publisher, a coach, and the CEO of a nonprofit called The Monarch Circle, where she helps people to heal from sexual abuse. Hi, everyone. I am Tanita Tanisha Johnson. Thanks so much for having me, Bridget. First of all, I am an author, editor, publisher, book coach, all of those things. But I'm also a survivor of sexual abuse. I do a lot of work around sexual abuse, molestation and rape. I'm the CEO of a nonprofit called The Monarch Circle, where we help both men and women heal from the effects of sexual abuse. And I'm just an extrovert, if I can say that, Bridget. I am the person who is like trying to throw a party every day, all day, twice on the weekend. My house is always open. I'm that girl. So yeah. I love that. I also am an extrovert. So I get that. One of the questions we ask everyone to start off is what does healing mean to you? Wow. That's powerful, Bridget. Healing for me means I don't feel the sting of what has happened. It does not mean I won't have the thought, I won't have the memory, I won't have the recollection of it, if you will. Just like with my molestation, I can talk about it openly now without tears, without crying, without breaking down, because I'm stronger on the other side of it. And I realized if if it happened to me, it happened for me. And what am I really in the earth to use that for? How can I turn that around for good? So I definitely think healing for me looks like When you don't feel the sting of what has happened, it doesn't mean you forget about it. It doesn't mean you don't remember the pain, but you don't feel the sting present day. That is so incredibly powerful. I also have experienced sexual abuse and sexual violence. And so I can very much resonate with the idea that I can still remember. I can still picture. It isn't like that ever goes away. However, I'm not overcome by it anymore. I want to thank you for right off the bat coming out with that part of your story. It's so critical that we talk about these things, that we're open with them. Culturally, in our society, so much of that stuff is swept under the rug, and that's dangerous. Yeah, so Bridget, I've just co-authored two books, Hush, Breaking the Cycle of Silence Around Sexual Abuse, and then Hush 2, which actually has three males and four females in it sharing their story of being molested. And so I really just came to the realization probably within the last two years that if I'm in the earth to only do one thing is probably to help others heal from the effects of sexual abuse. And I'm okay with that. And I think that is incredible and so brave to openly talk about this often secret issue. It's unfortunate that molestation and sexual abuse is so much ingrained into our culture because it almost seems like one in two people that I know have experienced something with molestation or sexual abuse. And it's just really heartbreaking. I think that people who have the courage 
to turn that trial, tribulation, trauma into a triumph to help other people who have also experienced that trauma is really courageous and brave. And I thank them because there are a lot of people who are still suffering in silence today who that's happened to. So Tanita is a survivor of sexual abuse herself. And she shared some of that story with us. She was molested by a deacon at her church who was also a male hairdresser and a female cousin. And she talked about how her family trusted this man because he was a deacon at the church and also the family member, like who would suspect a family member. So the male hairdresser, we just stopped going to him after so many years. So I haven't seen him since then. I moved away, went to college in Missouri. I live in Michigan now, but I haven't seen him, haven't ran into him. The other one is my female cousin, but I live in Michigan. She lives in Chicago. So the last time I saw her was at her father's funeral, probably in 2018. And it didn't feel weird at all. I really felt sorry for her because my question was, if she did it to me, who did it to her? And what story is she not telling And then I look back at her past and I remember her growing up and always spending a lot of time in her room, going to school and coming home and then just staying in her room for hours at a time with the door closed, just alone. So more than anything, I felt sorry for her as opposed to blaming her because it had to happen to her in order for her to do it to me. And more than anything, I hold probably my mother more responsible than I do the perpetrators. My mother was dropping me off with the male hairdresser at his home at 7 a.m. on a Saturday and leaving to go grocery shopping and coming back later. And it's like, you left your daughter with a grown man for two hours. Yes, you trust him. Yes, he's in the church. However, let's think about this. I also am a survivor of sexual abuse. My first interaction was with my grandfather from the time I was about two until I was about six. And so there is this kind of unspoken, often family patterns of sexual abuse and sexual trauma. One of the things that Tanita shared about her story about her trauma was the fact that her mother gave birth to her when her mother was 13 years old. This is another part of my story, Bridget. My mother had me at 13 years old, so we are only 13 years apart. We were raised more like sisters than mother and daughter. So there's a bit of jealousy there. Anytime I achieve something, she feels the need to go out and achieve the same. If I get a new car, she's like, let me go get a new car. I get a new house. Let me go get a new house. And I'm like, but I have a husband. You're single. (laughs) So it's one of those things where we're not as tight as I would like us to be. We are not the mother and daughter that's shopping at the mall for Christmas presents and wrapping gifts together and sitting around drinking coffee and eating donuts. That's not us. I probably talk to her once a week, maybe by text or phone. Those are the boundaries that I have set. She was here for the ugly sweater Christmas party yesterday. But again, even with that, she was very standoffish. She stayed in the dining room. She sat at the dining room table and she did not move from that spot the whole night. So I'm running around playing the hostess with the mostest, but she sat there. Our relationship is nowhere near where I want it to be. But in my lifetime, I've been able to have mother figures who have filled that void. Because at the end of the day, I had to realize she didn't have what I needed. She was 13 years old when she had me. So there was no way you knew how to be a mother 
to a now baby. And even at 26, she still didn't know how to be a mother. She was 13 when she had me. So my grandmother raised me up till about the age of nine. And then we relocated from Chicago to Detroit. But literally when we relocated, it was like growing up with a stranger. Wow. So your mother was a child. That's right. Was your father in the picture? Nowhere near. So I've never met my father. I got this running joke going. If he's walking down my street, I don't know who he is. Never seen a picture, never had a phone call. It's rumored that my mother was in a relationship with an older man and that all of my uncles and my grandfather ran him away. It's also rumored that it could be my grandfather, which would be even more detrimental. She is not ready to stand in the total truth. Even coming up, Bridget, now that we're talking about this, I remember her making me lie on the emergency cards at school where it says, what's your father's information? What's your mother's information? And she's like, if any of your teachers or the principals ask, when do you see your father? Just say you see him in the summer. You go back to Chicago off and on. You talk to him periodically. I mean, I was literally taught to lie. Wow. So sexual trauma sounds like a generational trauma. Yes. I look at my mother, I'm 42, so she's like 54. But even still, so many years later, her father died when I was like three, four, so I'm 42. So he's been dead 30 plus years now. Let's say it is him, hypothetically speaking. He's in the grave, yet he still holds that power over you because you can't stand in your truth to say it was him. Because my grandmother had 10 kids, So she literally just raised me like I was her 11th child. My mother didn't have to raise me until I turned like nine or 10 because my grandmother was already raising children. She had 10. So I was just like another child. After you have five, you just stop counting probably. (laughs) But again, it's the thing of your father's been dead 30 plus years and you still can't live in whatever the truth is, how ugly it is, how bad it is. He's in the grave, but still has that power over you. So I'm all about giving voice to it so that we can render it powerless. And so this idea of generational trauma and of silence and of really lies to protect perpetrators, it's a real thing and it continues, right? And so what Tanita is doing is not only healing her story, but she's really bringing to light this silent, widespread abuse in our culture that has been swept under the rug for a long time. I think it's so important that we continue to have these conversations and to bring to light not just what happened to us, but what happened before. Tanita has made this her mission. So she has authored and co-authored books about this topic and has also edited books that give others voice to their experiences. And the nonprofit, the Monarch Circle, is about creating circles where folks can talk about what happened. And I think that's so critical and so important in a society where there's still so much victim shaming around the topic of sexual abuse and sexual violence. It's so powerful to see someone sharing not only what happened, but also the impact of what happened. Tanita talked about the healing process, which has been years of counseling and addressing triggers. 
A lot of my healing journey was behind the scenes in small group discussions, community group discussions. It didn't take place at an altar. It wasn't like a big boom. Years of counseling. I've been in professional counseling for nine years now. So still working through the triggers, still working through the root of rejection, not feeling good enough. All of those things still try and resurface, but I'm stronger on the other side and now I know how to handle it. But the counseling, the community groups, and I tell people all the time, accountability was a big piece for me to break free. Because of the molestation, I then became addicted to pornography and masturbation, which a lot of women don't talk about. We assume that when we talk about masturbation that we're talking about men. Well, I was addicted to both and almost at the detriment of my marriage because it almost became like a substitute for my husband and I brought it into the marriage. So in order for me to heal from all of that baggage, all of that luggage, I had to have some accountability in place as well. Tanita, I can so incredibly relate with that. So when I began my healing journey and dealing with sexual trauma, I intentionally was single, celibate, and did not indulge in masturbation for a period of time in order to kind of reset the patterns that I had created with my sexuality that were rooted in what I experienced as a child. And redefining what sexual pleasure looked like and really rewiring brain chemistry around it, right? When you say accountability, it's a deliberate practice. It is addressing patterns of behavior and patterns of brain chemistry that were rooted in trauma. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So when I say accountability, I literally had not family, but friends who I said, I give you permission. And I gave them the words, I give you permission to ask me anytime, any day, text me, call me. When was the last time you watched porn? When was the last time you masturbated? When was the last time you had sex with your husband? And that's not them prying. That's them keeping me in line with where I said I want to be. And so when people really want accountability, that's when you give people that access to your phone, your computer, they download the app. You download the app, I think it's called Covenant Eyes, and you can see what they're looking at on their phone, from your phone, all of those things. And it's not about somebody babysitting you. We as people just don't like accountability. And I had to get to a place where I said, okay, I grew up with a mother who said, don't tell people your business. But at the end of the day, it's not my business. It's all God's business for me. And so I feel like, who am I? to shelter myself and keep these things under a rug, under wraps, and pretend like everything is perfect and I'm not going through anything. That's not real life. And so I feel like people are drawn to me. People relate to me a little bit more because I'm authentic with it. I come out from the gate like, here's my baggage. I didn't know what to do with it, but I'm turning it around for my good. One of the things about sexual trauma that often isn't talked about is how it affects your pleasure template. So how it affects your brain's understanding of physical pleasure. And because often when it happens so young, it's rooted in our core, almost animalistic understanding of sexual pleasure. It's very confusing to unravel that. And so her vulnerability in sharing about that she was married, she had a partner, but still was turning to these other areas for that pleasure, created a whole bunch of shame. 
And that shame was built upon shame that had come before that shame. So it was like the shame on shame on shame, even saying that out loud, right? You can hear it. People saying, shame on you, shame on shame on shame. And so unpacking all of those layers has been a journey, has been a process for her. And so important to talk about it. Yeah. And I think we've read and seen in the news and on the internet a lot of folks, celebrities and famous people who deal with addiction to porn. And it makes me wonder, is there a root cause for them too? And maybe it's not molestation or sex abuse, but I wonder where it stems from. Because now it's like there's a whole industry that could have capitalized off of the trauma of other people. I'm glad that Tanita was brave enough to share that because I know there are a lot of people who also can resonate with the molestation and then maybe turning to porn and being addicted or being promiscuous. I personally know young women that I went to high school with who were perceived as promiscuous or maybe were promiscuous because of sexual abuse or assault or molestation as a young girl. That's why it's so important for us to heal and to tap into our consciousness and beyond what society tells us, because a lot of times the way that we show up is because something happened to us. It's not just because, oh, they just want to be so promiscuous and devoid of love. It is because something happened that created this disconnect. And so it's really interesting that she shared that. And hopefully people who are listening will be able to resonate and find some peace in what she's even saying and sharing. I think it's incredibly important that we talk about that. I mean, the idea of porn as an addiction is often associated to men. And I think part of that is because there is so much shame around that for women. And I also think, too, right, this idea that having a lot of partners is, quote unquote, shameful, is that shame on shame on shame when it's rooted in woundedness when it's rooted in sexual abuse. And when boundaries are broken in youth, when that safety is taken away when you're really young, it affects so much of our psyche around sexuality, but also around worth and value. It's really confusing. And dismantling that and taking our power back looks different for different people. And it also is a process, right? It's layers, like being able to choose who and when sexual acts happen is part of taking that power back. And saying that that is shameful can contribute to the pain of that. But also identifying, hey, this is hurting me. This is unhealthy for me. It isn't taking my power back. And that balance is really internal. We got to go in and we have to talk about it. Absolutely. Because I think that molestation and sexual abuse can take two forms, right? It can make a person, man or woman, become over-sexualized or it can make them become under-sexualized or asexual because now they have this trigger where sex is not pleasurable. And I know some people personally where they have dealt with that for various reasons. And so I think that you said something really important is choice, being able to have free will in deciding to do one or the other because to have multiple partners is not necessarily bad or have to be connected to trauma, right? Like you are choosing to be intentional about loving multiple people and you want to explore multiple people. And then there is understanding, is it connected to a trauma? 
because it doesn't have to be. And I just want people who may be listening who are into maybe polyamory or like choosing to have multiple lovers because they find pleasure and that is the way that they take back their power. That is okay. But if there is an underlying issue of trauma, I think what we're saying is that someone like Tanita who hosts these safe havens and these healing circles to be able to talk about that you can be able to examine and ask yourself, is my behavior connected to something that happened to me as a child? And it's something that you have to journey to and find the strength to be able to ask yourself those questions about your current day behavior. Absolutely. And one of the things that she and I talked about was this space of non-judgment, that this process of healing from sexual abuse and sexual trauma, it's really critical, important to approach it from a place of non-judgment, and of listening, because what is pleasurable for one person might be traumatic for someone else. And so it's important to have an open mind, to come to these safe spaces with non-judgment, and to then hold each other accountable based on what we want to be held accountable to. So she was talking about in these safe spaces, having people that will help her to uphold what she wants for herself, which for her personally was to no longer watch porn because for her, porn was a trigger, was a red flag for her in her healing. So initially it was scary. Let me be honest, Bridget, it was embarrassing because if they did ask me, when was the last time you masturbated? And I said this morning. Well, that's embarrassing. And I think the assumption is if you're married, you won't have a need to self-satisfy or watch pornography or anything like that. And it's just not true. The seeds were planted inside me long before I said I do to my husband. So we dated off and on for 10 years, but we didn't get married until 10 years after we met. So he has to deal with all of the stuff and tearing down all of the walls and tearing down all of the baggage that I brought into the marriage from family members. And then I was also molested by a male hairdresser. So I was molested by both female and male. So then I'm worried about my identity. If a female touched me, does that now mean I'm gay, whether I want to be gay or not? So all of these things are happening and I don't know how to process any of that. So when I got older, I promised myself, and I'm also the accountability partner for others. So I have access to a few people's phone. I have the app. And if they ask me to hold them accountable, I can call them. I can text them anytime, any day and say, what are you doing? When was the last time you did this? And so for me, it keeps an open door and it keeps me in check and me in line. Because if I do it, I feel like I've not only let myself down, but now I've let these other people down too. Part of my healing journey from sexual trauma was an extended period of being single and celibate. And during that time, I broke that vow to myself. And my immediate reaction was shame and beating myself up and saying, how dare you break that vow? But because I had a safe space, because I had girlfriends who understood what I was going through, why I was doing that, I was able to make phone calls and say, this is what I did. And instead of being met with shame, Saying like, okay, how are you doing now? What are you doing for yourself? What's going to come next, right? The act of having a sexual encounter with either yourself or with someone else isn't in itself a negative or quote unquote bad thing. Because I had made that vow to myself, it was a thing in which I felt shameful because I had broken that vow to myself. And that's what she's talking about with accountability and how it looks different based on 
what you want for yourself. And in order for us to create those safe spaces, we need non-judgment and we need to understand that what is true for one person isn't true for someone else necessarily. And I think that's so important and it requires vulnerability and honesty. And that's not always easy. No, that's what I was just thinking. Like in order to be held accountable, we do have to first share and be vulnerable and transparent about what we're needing so that our safe circles and spaces can actually support us. And we have to be open and receptive to when they actually hold us accountable because we've asked them to, right? And so sometimes in being held accountable and having accountability partners, we forget what we've asked for. And then when they come and they're telling us and reminding us like, hey, you said you weren't going to do that. Why are you doing that? I think we have to, before we respond, remember this is what that feels like to be held accountable. You're going to be challenged to do things differently and not revert back to your norms because those are the norms that we're trying to outgrow and overcome. I personally have practiced being vulnerable with friends and people that I feel safe with to say, hey, I am trying to overcome this bad habit. For me right now, I have accountability partners holding me accountable to relinquishing control, not controlling situations because God told me to submit and surrender. And so in order to do that, I have to continuously every second of the day, choose to relinquish control and not to try to control a situation. And that is very difficult and you have to be very intentional. That requires me, though, to be vulnerable with my friends and say, this is what I need. And when they check in, I have to be receptive. And sometimes we get a little amnesia. (laughs) And so, yes, absolutely. I think it's great that Tanita has been able to be brave enough to ask her circles to be able to hold her accountable so that she could truly overcome that pattern, that habit that she wanted to rid herself of. She talked about her husband and the importance of his patience and understanding as she was going through this process and that he was willing to work with her as she was working on herself and facing her abuse And we talked about how they almost didn't make it work. It almost didn't happen. And there was a time where they weren't talking and they weren't connecting. And she started to look outside of the marriage. At 10 years married, I found myself in an affair against my husband. So all of those things, and I mean, praise God, he stayed. He chose to forgive me and we worked through it. But again, you have to be married to a man who's willing to work through the trauma, the drama, the stress. I call it drama. The stress and drama of it all that comes with it, because 18 years later, 18 years married, I'm still having triggers. And if I could just flip a switch, Bridget, and not have the triggers, I would be good. I'm fine talking about it. I'm good. There's no emotional tie to it. I'm all about moving forward in the mission. But it's the triggers that still try to hold me back. I completely resonate with that. For me, my trauma response was to dissociate. And so I continue to traumatize myself with different men in different situations because I would dissociate. And I often wouldn't even remember everything that happened, even if I was completely sober. And once I started healing, I started remembering. And those memories, they were traumas, right? I mean, the reason I dissociated was to escape what I was choosing to traumatize myself with. And also realizing in some situations I wasn't necessarily choosing, but putting myself in dangerous situations. 
And so going through that healing process and then being in a healthy, non-toxic relationship with someone who is not traumatizing me, but also like being accountable for when I'm triggered and not leaving and being open and honest and saying, I'm being traumatized or I'm being triggered and I'm feeling like I'm in a trauma situation. My body wants to go into flight or fight and it isn't you. And that requires me to be open and honest with my past and with my triggers. But it also requires this loving partner, which is an incredible gift to have someone who is willing to see us beyond what we have experienced. Yeah, that's good. And I think we all bring baggage, not just into marriage, but any relationship, a friendship, family relationships, we bring some form of baggage. And so our goal as humans is always, I don't want to get hurt. So what can I do? How can I give? How can I love with the least amount of effort so that I don't get hurt when this person hurts me? (laughs) I'm grateful for my husband who chose to stick by me in the midst of the storm. And it was a tsunami. Can you tell us a little bit more about the tsunami? We probably weren't speaking for maybe two weeks. So number one, we shut down communication, which I tell people is the number one no-no in marriage. We shut down communication for two weeks. And my love language is words of affirmation. And so if you're not talking to me for two weeks, the first person who comes along and says, hey, beautiful, it's like wide open skies. (laughs) That was it. It was that simple. There was no whining and dining, Bridget. I didn't get a gold ring. I didn't get like gifts and this elaborate dinner at Jay Alexander's or Ruth Chris. It was literally words of affirmation because my husband had shut down and didn't speak to me for two weeks. So we coach marriage couples now and we tell them, listen, whatever you do, don't shut down communication because you leave your spouse wide open. So we have a marriage ministry called Marriage Uncut, and it's based off some books that we wrote as well, Marriage Uncut, Straight Talk, No Chaser. And so those are anthologies as well, where couples have told their story about the good, the bad, the ugly, the indifferent that they went through in their marriage. We're all about dealing with the real and raw of marriage. It's not a fairy tale. It's two people coming together with a whole lot of baggage and luggage, and it's not Louis Vuitton luggage. (laughs) It's probably Walmart cheap luggage, but it's luggage nonetheless. And we tell people, if you want to work through it, you can work through it, but don't shut down communication. All issues, money, sex, bills, accounts, credit, all of those things go back to one master problem, communication. Amen. So then let me ask you, when you chose to seek accountability partners in your healing journey, why not your husband? Because he has not experienced sexual abuse and because he has never been addicted to porn or masturbation, he sometimes can be, I don't want to say insensitive, but he'll make a joke about it. And in all honesty, because he's a man, he didn't really see anything necessarily wrong with the porn, with the masturbation either. He was asking to watch. That's a man for you. But again, he didn't understand that I was trying to tell him, no, this is replacing you. This is not in addition to you. Like this is a male replacement for you. And I never want to get to a place where I'm like, I don't need my husband for anything. I'm good. I can do it myself. That's not how we were created. 
we can have a supporting partner, a loving partner, but we also need folks that are going to show up at different roles. We may need a teacher. We may need someone outside of the relationship who is going to show us the tools that we need to show up in the relationship. In order to be a better partner, she needed coaching on how to heal and be a better partner. The group that they host is called Marriage Uncut, and she says that relationships are not fairy tales, that we all come with baggage. She said sometimes our baggage is Louis Vuitton. (laughs) (laughs) But she said if you haven't experienced sexual trauma, it's hard to understand that baggage. But the truth is we all have baggage, and relationships require patience and support as we unpack that baggage. That reminds me of a book that I'm currently reading by Bell Hooks called All About Love. And I read one chapter yesterday. I think it was probably chapter one. And it's so good. Oh, my gosh. Actually, I would recommend that anybody read that book because it is good for the healing journey as well as just learning more about love for self love of others, your intimate partners, friendships, family, all those things. And so Bell Hooks, she talked about love is this thing that we all seek to have, but it is the most abstractly defined word that nobody really knows what it is. And that in the dictionary right now, it is a noun, but it should be a verb because it is an action. And so she talked about Brian Peck. He quoted someone from decades ago that tried to clearly define what love is. And so what I'm getting at is it sounds like this is what Tanita and her husband were able to arrive to. Love is the sacrifice of oneself to help yourself and someone else to get to spiritual growth. And so spiritual, not as in religious, but as in your higher self. And so that's something that we all experience on the healing journey is getting to our higher self or back to the core of who we are outside of all of these conditions and learned behavior. And it means that we do have to sacrifice a little bit. It means that we have to be able to forgive. It means that we have to have compassion and we have to be caring and all these other things that make up love. And it is also unconditional, meaning that if you hurt my feelings, I'm not going to stop loving you in that situation. That's incredibly powerful. I think what Tanita has done in her healing journey for herself and her family and healing generational trauma is powerful. But I agree that having a partner who is loving enough to take that challenge and to grow alongside you has created these beautiful outcomes to include the coaching that they are doing, to include the nonprofit that they have founded, that it has taken her healing to another level and it has become their healing. It really is. I'm glad that they're doing it together and that they were able to work through the issues that they had. If you can be vulnerable and still be accepted, I think that's a good place to be. I think what that looks like, what they're doing, I've actually had to practice this myself. You have to be your whole self. And that is a very scary thing to do because, again, you talked about shame and you talked about the self-criticism that we do to ourselves. But in order for you to have open and honest communication and for a relationship to truly work you have to give that person your whole self and that means the bad too and I think a lot of times we like to amplify all the things that make us look better 
to our partners and to our friends and to our families. And it's almost like we're killing a version of ourselves, right? We're silencing that version of ourselves that's still a part of who we are in a great way because we are impacted by those flaws or those traumas. So when we can't be our whole selves, it's very difficult experience. And it oftentimes creates other mechanisms for us that makes it even more difficult. So I love that Tanita and her husband have been able to truly show up as their whole full selves, flaws and all, traumas and all, so that they can help each other heal but then help other people heal because you can't help somebody else heal if you're not showing all your stuff. Absolutely. I think that healing from sexual abuse is one of those things that really requires healing within relation with another person or other people. The trauma happened in relation with another person and it's very intimate and it requires seeking to understand on the other person's part. In my experience specifically, there's sometimes fear associated with sexual interaction. And that is because of my past. It is not because of what my partner is doing, but my partner's understanding is required in order to regain that safe space. I think it's important to talk about that, right? It is extremely brave for Tanita to share her story. It is also incredibly powerful for her to share about the support that she receives from her partner because both is needed and required for healing in an area where the intimacy is where the healing is needed. And this is good. I'm glad that you said like a partner has to understand what's going on. Then the other person has to also understand that it's okay for them to say, hey, this is difficult and this is tough. I am here to support and listen. And I'm feeling a way about this, but I am still here to work through it. And I don't think we hear enough experiences and conversations about that working through it and that's what you're talking about with your partner and then also what Tanita and her husband did right I can imagine that on both sides if they both had some traumas that when they were being honest and vulnerable and transparent about the things that happened to them the other person is like whoa that is a lot to take in and let me just kind of sit with that and I think that we have to equally give each other the space and the time to kind of process through those things that are showing up today because it's not easy to work through traumas it's just not easy and we also are hurting and grieving for each other as well when we share the things that happen to us and I think we have to be able to give each other the space to work through that and I think all of those things make up the safe space in the environment to get to a place where Tanita and her husband are now with their circles right you have to get through it and over it to be able to get to the place where you can then share the blessing of healing to give to others absolutely and that leads right into what advice she gives to others So number one, I tell people, get involved in community, whether that's a community group or whether you have a circle of friends that gets together every so often, whatever it is, because that becomes your inner circle. I'm very concerned about people when they say they're a loner or they can do life alone. That's scary because it's like not only who are you accountable to, but if you ever fall in a ditch and you find yourself in a dark place, Who's picking you up out of the ditch? Because you can't climb out yourself. The other thing that's been critical for me is journaling, handwriting, journaling, notes. I have plenty of journals. I also write poetry. So most of my poetry is centered around healing from the sexual abuse. But the community groups, the journaling, definitely prayer, 
accountability. If it's not going to be that circle, that friend, that organization, maybe it's a ministry, maybe it's a book club, whatever it is, there has to be some level of accountability. Because again, I go back to the analogy. If you find yourself in a dark hole and nobody's with you, who's going to know you're in a dark hole? Nobody. So you stay in the dark hole. And so my purpose and my passion is to help people not ever have to get to the dark hole. It's great advice. It can be simple if we make it that way in our minds. But when we do make the choice to say, okay, I'm committing to this journey, it becomes a little bit easier along the way. So can you tell us a little bit more about the Monarch Circle? Yeah. So the Monarch Circle, we just filed our 501c3. So we're waiting on the official paperwork, but it is an organization where we do events. We hold small group discussions throughout the year around healing from sexual abuse. So our small group discussions will run for 10 weeks at a time. Our goal is to have cohorts around Michigan for now and then eventually branch out into other states. The vision is so big to have cohorts in every state, if not every major city, where people can tap in and get help, just like AA. Alcoholics Anonymous is all over the nation, if not the world. There is an AA somewhere near you. All you need to do is go to the website and plug in your zip code. That's how I want the Monarch Circle to be. I want you to be able to go find a circle of friends to help you work through this. People who have been through it or people who are still going through it. But just to let people know you're not in this fight alone. I am honored that Tanita shared her story with us. It's a topic that I think it's important that we talk about. I think we see a lot of this topic in the news. And when that happens, when there are big trials for sexual assault or harassment or abuse, it's often met with questions about the victim. So we still, as a society, are caught up in this victim blaming. And we need more people brave enough to share their stories and to share the impact of their stories. Because the more that we are talking about the truth of the trauma and the healing the more there will be understanding. And so I am so honored that Tanita chose to share our story with us. And I just want to thank her for her bravery. Thank you, for Tanita, for being on the show, for sharing your story with us. This has been Tears, Tides, and Transformation, a podcast about healing. And this episode has been sponsored by Tara Scherter. I am Bridget Flaherty. And I am Kiana Daniels. Thank you for joining us. I see no life. I see no time. Do you have a poem that you could share? I do have a poem that I can share. Hold on, let me pull it up. It's actually called Untouched. And I wrote this for a book project. Okay, you ready, Bridget? I'm ready. All right, here we go. Cold hardwood floors couldn't cover the stench that's forever ingrained in my nose. Chilly, freezing almost, I feared asking, can I just put back on my clothes? The fact that we had to hide let me know it was wrong, somewhat. Fear of what my family would say made me feel like a hoe, a tramp, a slut. Many days I lay awake waiting for the pain, the shame to subside, 
only to find myself searching for a deeper place to hide. Grandma always talked about God, but where in the hell was he? Dear God, can you even honor a prayer from a kid like me? Mary, children of my own, yet I still lock up. I've grown, I've matured, but I'm mentally, spiritually stuck. You can take a poor black girl out the hood, make her put on masks and act like life is all good. But when depression, suicidal thoughts and bouts of lust become her crutch, does the God that she sing about, the God that she's heard about, have the power to render her untouched? Thank you. That's incredible. That's incredible. (laughs) Did you have another one? Did you want to share a second? The other one is actually called Clipped Wings. Clipped Wings. I was born to fly, born to soar, but somehow, some way, I don't know who I am anymore. Late nights at the club, grinding on men whose names I didn't care to know. Weed, alcohol, and late night rendezvous with too many shades of gray for me to remember. The morning after wasn't just a pill. It was my wake-up call to the reality that I didn't know what or who in the hell just happened. Tempted to follow a crowd without a map or GPS, I lost my identity when I voluntarily picked up theirs. I was born to fly, born to soar, but somehow, some way, I don't know who I am anymore. Coming from a family of addicts and low achievers, someone in my family knew they had to be strategic about teaching me to fly. However, over time, I found myself in the cycle of the generational curses that have rested on my bloodline for years untold. Not addicted to alcohol, weed, cocaine, or gambling. No cush, meth, or blunts could hold me hostage. I was faithful to one addiction, sex. I was born to fly, born to soar, but somehow, someway, I don't know who I am anymore. I lost who I was, who grandma prayed for me to be, who I dreamed of becoming as a child at the fate of men, waking up to stained sheets, a broken heart, and short-term memory loss of what took place in the midnight hour. I often wondered, how do I make this all end? Slowly but surely, I forgot how to fly. I forgot how to soar. Sex became love when love didn't love me no more. I reduced my very being to being the life of every party, yet lost my life in the process. I was born to fly, born to soar, but somehow, some way, I don't know who I am anymore. It took me a few years to get it, but it finally dawned on me. With every face, with every hit, for what I wanted to be the last time, I cut my own wings until eventually I had nothing left. Empty, broken, tattered, and torn, I subconsciously, unconsciously chose to pick up this thorn. I was born to fly, born to soar, but somehow, someway, I don't know who I am anymore. Carry on through the years, transform through the tears, the audacity of you going through it all, the audacity of you trusting self all along, I see.